Warning, the following podcast contains interviews that may be emotionally disturbing for some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of The Unerasable Stories. In honor of International Overdose Awareness Day, we wanted to share some stories from family members and friends who have lost a loved one by overdose. We want to dive into the stories right away because we believe it is one of the best ways to honor each person. So here are their stories. But inside she was, uh, she was loved by so many people. She had a heart of gold. At just 18 years old, she loved people and animals, a zest for life, a fierce competitor, figure skating since she was six years old. It was really all about, you know, skating, school and friends was, was her lifestyle. It's always challenging when you raise kids. I think, you know, they get through high school and graduate and you think you've done a good job. Anyways, uh, we got through high school and we had a Greek graduation and we were off to uh, a new chapter in life, which was getting through college, you know. It was her own little secret, I guess, to some degree. You know, I was shocked. I couldn't understand why she was dead. There was no trauma. There was no... Her body, she was, she, it's like she kneeled down and went to sleep and it didn't make any sense to me at all. Kind of in there saying goodbye to her and I picked up the person, I opened it and I said, the police officer was standing right there and I said, what are these? A few days later, I can't remember what the date was, we were talking to one of her closest friends um, who's indicated that uh, she was taking Percocets. You know, we're not gonna get Teslin back or we may not even find out where she ever got these from. Um, and while we want to, the key is we want to make sure it doesn't keep happening. Even looking back, Bob says there were no signs. Even Teslin's sister, Melody, her very best friend, had no idea. But the pain they feel now is far too real. We were a family of five, now we're a family of four. There's a big gaping hole in the family. In everything we do, there's one missing. She had a smile that would light up her room. She had a passion for basketball. Then she picked up golf, and she, she was a natural with that. She really enjoyed the game. The one thing that caught us truly off guard going towards the end is we didn't realize how, how badly she felt about herself. Look at the pictures. Why would we think she had a self-esteem problem? But the fact of the matter is, that was one of the major engines that drove her to, to, to areas where she really didn't need to go, didn't have to go. My spoons started to disappear. And I'm not talking, you know, one or two, it'd be like, okay, I have like three spoons left. And I remember I had a hundred and fifty some dollars in my wallet. I had when I went to pay that I had I had seventy-five dollars. And of course she started crying. And 
yes, I came down. Yes, I took your credit card. Yes, I used it. And I remember going to court the next day and, and you know, beautiful Marin, and then bringing her in, shackles on her ankles in these prison uniform. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, how did we get here? What, what, I, I was just numb. She needed the money to pay some people back and she needed the money to trade the gas for the heroin. If you would have asked us, what do you know about heroin? I would have said a street drug, a junkies drug. You know, so. not something that is that you hear about on TV. It's not something that you would find in a community like Pickerington or any suburb. I mean, I every day was that. I ha we have to keep her alive, we have to save her. If she said she was going to a meeting, I would follow ahead of time and sit in the parking lot and see her walk in because I could breathe again, because she showed up. I got one, we got one more day. She's sober, one more day. She never even had a car but she still found a way to get it because they would just bring it to the house when we were sleeping. I remember walking into the apartment and I've never heard such a horrendous scream in all my life. When I went up and walked through that bathroom door and saw him there holding my daughter um, I knew immediately she'd passed away. I know she really wanted to make it. And I know she doesn't want to see any other family go through what we have gone through. And I know she wants me to talk about it. And I found her journal that I bought for her. In her journal, she wrote a goodbye letter to Heroin. Dear Heroin, before I met you, I was full of life, at least from what I thought. But then problems started coming my way that gave me the excuse to meet you. It was like love at first sight. Not only did you do things for me, but boy did I do things for you. I lied to my family, friends, and even more importantly, I lied to myself. I would steal and cheat for you. I would risk my freedom and my life for you. But our relationship went to hell when the first and last time you really almost took me away forever. You had me for seven minutes. I won this battle, and I will never have to suffer again. Sincerely, your worst enemy, Marin Riggs. She still went back to it. 
that it was still because of the grip it had on her. Do I miss her every day? Oh, sure. We can't bring her back, and we can't go back. But if we can help other people by telling our story, then that's what we have to do. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved her It just was a nightmare. I was totally unaware of what he was doing. We never dreamed that they were doing this. We never dreamed there was a problem. And all of a sudden, we're finding that it's a, an epidemic. I mean, even as I think about it now, it just still seems unreal. See you soon. Heroin is just the end of the road. Then very few people can turn around from it. I can't recall when I met him for the first time. When you know somebody for that many years, you kind of lose sight of your first memories of them. And uh, Dave was a very smart, person. Uh, he didn't fit the stereotype of uh, what a drug addict uh, would be. David was very funny, very warm. Uh, I think he wanted to be older than he was. He wasn't a picture of, of any hard drug use to me. Addiction is like an iceberg. Um, what somebody lets you know about their problems with drugs or alcohol is really a very, very tiny piece of what actually is going on. This picture has got 10 years old. There was a Sugarloaf book that we got for each of the boys. When I first started to notice something was actually several years after David had been living here. It wasn't right away. I think the introduction to cocaine, heroin, started probably a year or two after high school. And that's when we knew there was something more going on than we really ever dreamed. We got him into a detox program that was available here locally. So we thought that things were going in a good direction. We thought that he was past kind of a, a shaky point. 
he seemed very uh, involved and focused and in the world. That's the only way I could describe it. When he was doing drugs, he was, he was there, but he wasn't there. And you could tell, you could tell when he was there. This is my new iPod camera. Uh, I hope you can hear me and see me. Uh, yeah. Dave's job ended on Columbus Day weekend. He came down right after that. He was here for a few days. And um, that's when he died. Um, he died right here, right upstairs. He, he went to his room and he overdosed. And Kevin didn't know. You know, he had gone to bed. And he got up in the morning and went to work. I actually left work early that day. And, um, you know, I'm kind of getting things ready for dinner. And I hear a noise. Heard the dog scratching in the room, his dog. It went upstairs. Uh, as I'm getting walking up the stairs, the whining's continuing. Um, I open the door, and there was Dave. So, so he had died the night before. He called Charles, my oldest son, and told him to tell me. I think we didn't want to believe what was really happening. You know, you just think that they're going to outgrow this or it's not my kid. You know, he wouldn't do this. And so you kind of find excuses for things, which I think we totally did. And we were just totally stupid about a lot of stuff. You always think that your friend's not going to die. I mean, you, you would read that in the paper about somebody else. You know, but it's absolutely true that, you know, your best friends die if they're doing that. I had all my friends up this last night and we all, they all cleaned the condo while I was at work. Sweet. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I look forward to seeing you guys. I think how short his life was and how long my life is. And I'm only sorry that. He misses out. heroin addiction, the epidemic that it is. In Hennepin County alone, just last year, 50 people died of heroin overdose. One was my son. Did I ever in my wildest nightmare think that my bright three-year-old kid that was the happiest, you know, he was good in school and all that, 
Did I, did I ever think that that's my son's gonna grow up to be a heroin addict? Did he ever think that? Don't ever say it can't be my child because it can be and it, God forbid, no one wants to live that life, that gut-wrenching every day, wondering, is this gonna be the day I get the phone call or the police knock on my door? He always loved nature and outdoors. I mean, he loved camping and, and being outside. And he loved music, loved going to concerts and playing music and art. He was a phenomenal artist. Played baseball, hockey, soccer, football, was a Boy Scout. I mean, all those typical things. He was a typical kid from the suburbs. I mean, he was an adult at that time, and we were sitting out at the picnic table. It was in the summertime, and he was with his girlfriend, and, and um, she said, you have to tell your mom. And he said, Mom, I'm a heroin addict. And I dropped to my knees. I, I was shocked. I was shocked. And he had been using probably for a while because he obviously was reaching out for help. And... Um, so then we got him into treatment. He got out of treatment and it wasn't, within just a couple days, I knew he was using again. At that time, I just couldn't understand. You were in treatment for a month and you get out and two days later you're back on it. What is going on? You don't even want to quit? Or I didn't realize that this drug is so powerful you can't quit. He had, what, seven or eight friends that died and that wasn't even enough the consequences of your life, you lose a job or your, your schooling or your family dynamics, all of it. With all your life falling apart around you, it is so powerful that you cannot stop. A friend had given him an Oxycontin and he liked the way it felt and then they were got really expensive and heroin was cheap. I mean, you ask every question because you want an answer. You just want, okay, this is why. He said, Mom, I tried it, I liked it, and, and, and I have an addictive personality, and that's how it came about. That's how simple explain it to me. But I wanted, I want an answer. I want it, you know. It, it's not, doesn't always have to be a trauma, a tragedy, or, you know. It doesn't always have to be that. I'd get so angry, I just thought, well, you're just enabling him. We should just cut him off. I thought maybe if he hit rock bottom, maybe then he'd wake up and smell the roses. And I'd get so darn angry, it affected our marriage, you know. It affected our whole family. I know in my heart that if I would have just thrown him out, he would have been dead long before he did. There is no right or wrong answer. You just go by your gut. And, and you know, because you're, like I said, you're just as sick. And it's sick the other way, too, the way I was thinking, you know. You walk around being mad all the time, angry, you know. What the heck? You got to grow up sometime, but it just wasn't to be. I could see that he was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. He just hated his life. He hated being an addict. He hated it. He wanted sobriety so badly. The whole time Garrett was sick, I was sick too. You know, I'm still kind of, you do things, I mean, even as, as a mother, all you're doing is trying to keep your child alive. It's all you're doing. 
and you're just going day by day. Is he going to live another day? That's what I kept on saying. God let him live another day to get to treatment, to get better. When you are a mother or a parent of an addict, people have the stigma of, oh, you must have been a bad parent or whatever. People just have a stigma. They have no idea that it's affects everybody. The pain and the suffering that he went through and every addict goes through is something that we will never, ever comprehend, ever. I know what I felt like as his mother. I can't imagine the physical, mental anguish. It's inconceivable to me. He saved so many people. I just got another call from somebody again the other day. I wouldn't be here if Garrett wouldn't have saved my life. He'd saved so many lives from overdoses, but he couldn't save his own. So if nothing else, maybe I can be his voice to try and continue to do what he was doing. It's the most painful, painful thing that I've ever lived through or ever will, but I know he is at peace and he is not suffering and he's with God. So for that, I'm grateful. So if I have to be his voice, God and him will lead me where I need to go. I believe that. She had a great smile. <laughs> we did a lot as a family. Uh, we went camping all the time, boating on the lake. She was really a, a typical kid, very, uh, very involved at, at school. She was a cheerleader and a competitive dancer and a black belt in Taekwondo, and I was there for all of it. I took every chance I could get to be the homeroom mom and be there for the parties and the field trips. Um, I just tried to stay involved at all times and I think that helped you know, build that relationship. So from a young age, I was there. When Casey was 14, uh, about 14, is when we started to see uh, signs that things were going wrong. Stealing a few beers at a slumber party with friends smoking weed. My husband and I, we, we did the typical things. You take away the cell phone and you, and you ground her. As a parent, I don't think that I took it that seriously at the time. I thought, she's a teenager. She's doing things that most of us did. Then maybe around 15-ish, she was starting to dabble in pills, opioids. Did I believe that it would lead to heroin? and all the horror that goes with addiction? No. And she actually came back to me and said, I have a problem and I need help. We tried to get her help, uh, therapists and counselors. It's really hard to hand your child over to somebody else and say, fix them. By the time we realized uh, how bad it was, you know, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, she was already in so deep. So we did get her into rehab right away. Um, and we had hoped that would be enough. As things progressed and outpatient therapy was not working, she did graduate high school, and we were hoping for a fresh start, but she, she was just getting worse. She would say that, you know, I just, I wanna make you proud again. And she would be so devastated by guilt and shame when she would relapse. I, I would explain to her that every time you try again, you make me proud. 
I'm not disappointed in a relapse. I'm scared and I'm sad and I'm frustrated. I, I'm angry, I'm, I'm everything, but not at you. I, I'm mad at, at the addiction. The struggle with Casey affected myself, my husband, her brother, my son, so deeply. It was that fear and that frustration of, we wanna help Casey and we can't. You actually kind of become addicted to trying to save them. It was my own form of addiction, was worrying about her 24 hours a day. You talk about how people wait for that phone call. My phone never left my hand. She said, I don't have any money and I wanna, I wanna get you something for Christmas. And I said, please, don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> and she went out and uh, bought a box and some craft material and painted it and bedazzled it, <laughs> decorated it. And in the box was a letter from her. And she said, I've been so depressed and upset lately that I can't get this right. She said, but now I have hope. She said, I really have hope. It was one of her favorite words. <laughs> Mine too. We were struggling to find a bed in rehab. Insurances got in the way. Uh, so we found a lot of obstacles there, unfortunately. And it's very frustrating to me because when an addict wants help, there should be no barriers ever. So she was continually keeping herself afloat, treading water uh, while she was waiting for rehab and packing. Uh, we had settled a rehab facility and she was really excited about going and starting this new life. And unfortunately, she overdosed the night before, literally sitting next to her packed suitcase she had seen an honest obituary, what people would refer to as an honest obituary of somebody who had died from addiction, and they stated that in the obituary, and she sent it to me. And uh, she said, did, did you read that link I sent you? She said, would you do that? She said, if something ever happened to me, would you be honest? She said, I would want you to. Um, she said, don't say suddenly. Don't say suddenly. Tell them my story. The secrets will help nobody. I wrote the obituary and it, it was so hard. One of the hardest things I've ever done. I just wanted to tell people how she never wanted her addiction to define her, that she was more than that. Uh, but I wanted to be honest. I had just posted it on my Facebook. I had never imagined the way it would go. I was getting messages from all over the country and from all over the world. The news started calling. So many people connected with this epidemic. Uh, Casey will always be special to me, but was she any more special than the other 64,000 people who died last year of an overdose? No, there's tragic stories everywhere. And I think, how can I inspire them and how can I give them hope? And I realized that they're the ones who inspire me because um, after I speak to them, they, uh, they let me know that they really, they heard me. They didn't just listen, they heard me. A lot of the messages I received uh, were families, some of them who lost their kids, people in addiction who said, I have Casey's obituary in my pocket and I read it and it keeps me going. Or I have Casey's obituary hanging on my mirror and I read it every morning. Or I read Casey's story and tomorrow I'm gonna seek treatment.
My response was, don't wait till tomorrow, do it today. My job is to put a face behind some of those numbers and remind people that those 64,000 people, uh, they were somebody and they were loved. And there's other numbers that we need to embrace. And maybe if we start counting the number of people in recovery instead of the number of people in the morgue, you know, we could really start seeing a turnaround and, and give that hope more. I just feel that if I could do anything uh, to help one person, then all of this that's happened since Casey died would be worth it because there is no such thing as just one person. She really wanted to save everybody. Uh, she just couldn't save herself. I try to reach people and, and remind them that, you know, if you're still breathing, if you opened your eyes this morning, then you have that chance. Don't waste it. You know, where there's breath, there's hope. When somebody wants help, they should be able to receive that help. The Unerasable Stories podcast hears your stories and we see you. We'll leave you with this. There is hope. In the words of Leia Organa, hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you see it, you'll never make it through the night.